today on Against the Grain, part two of our interview about W.E.B. Du Bois with the sociologist Michael Bourvoy. Plus, we remember David Harris, the anti-war and Vietnam draft resistance activist, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. We continue today with more about W.E.B. Du Bois, the sociologist, historian, social critic, and activist best known for his book, The Souls of Black Folk. Yesterday, we presented part one of an extended interview I did with the UC Berkeley-based sociologist Michael Bourvoy. Part two, presented today, delves into Du Bois's understanding of the post-colonial situation in Africa as nations gained their independence from colonial rule, and Du Bois's view of whether interracial working-class solidarity could be achieved in the U.S. Michael Bourvoy also talks about his new book, Public Sociology, which has been called an intellectual autobiography. Later in the hour, we'll remember David Harris, the anti-war activist and writer who died on February 6th. We begin by picking up with my conversation with Michael Bourvoy about, mostly, an essay he wrote about Du Bois and Franz Fanon that's part of the forthcoming volume, The Oxford Handbook of W.E.B. Du Bois. So by proposing, advocating for a Negro nation within the nation, as you said, this black economy that would have minimal reliance on the larger U.S. economy. Uh, that, that does suggest that Du Bois is, is sort of seeing, and I may be generalizing here, African-Americans as, as a monolith. And uh, I know that in your writings, you, you um, have a certain critique in relation to this. W- what do you sense Du Bois was ignoring or eliding by talking about African-Americans as, as having, as a group, a, a common interest. Yeah. Well, that goes back to his idea of the talented tenth, in which he saw the African leaders, in a sense, representing the broader community of African-Americans. And he was hopeful that, indeed, this cooperative commonwealth um, would be a collaborative project enjoining a sort of black middle class together with with more subordinate classes. Uh, he, he believed in this because he thought that the racial order was pushing these classes together into a cooperative stance. And he was perhaps a bit, um, was a bit optimistic about that. And, and later on, he, he develops a sort of auto-critique um, about the black middle classes and sees that they are not necessarily dedicated to the overall interests of African-Americans, but had their own interests at heart. I mean, this is, this is also quite relevant to the comparison of Franz Fanon and Du Bois. Franz Fanon was always very focused on the interests of the black bourgeoisie in post-colonial Africa and recognized that one of the trajectories of post-colonial Africa would be towards a sort of a, a, a national bourgeoisie in control, which is largely uh, what happened, um, and recognizing that the national bourgeoisie, in fact, as a ruling class, has interests of its own. Du Bois was was very slow to adopt that position. He was always thinking that the leadership of African-Americans would actually bring that community together. um, And the talented 10th, which, by the way, became the guiding 100th when he realized that actually not all the middle classes were so dedicated to the project of of bringing forth, advancing the interests of the African-Americans. He nevertheless, he still saw that this was was a possibility and has been obviously criticized for not understanding, not being being sufficiently Marxist in his class analysis of the African-American community itself. So, yeah, we've been talking about Du Bois's understanding of the African-American and the white American situation 
uh, in the U.S. And, you know, he did turn his gaze toward other parts of the world. I mean, he, he traveled a lot. He eventually ended up in Africa. He moved there in 1961, I think, and spent the last couple of years of his life in, in Ghana. And part of his, his traveling had to do with the fact that the, the U.S. government developed a keen hostility toward him uh, based on his politics. When Du Bois looked at the African situation, the situation that uh, Fanon was looking at through a different lens, but you know these these countries that were achieving independence from colonialism and imperialism, um, trying to get themselves on a footing that Du Bois certainly hoped would be a democratic and socialist. What did uh, Du Bois think about the? A post-colonial situation in terms of, you know, you have all these black Africans who take control. What, what did he see? Uh, how was his view of, of African society and the state and balance of political forces different from Fanon's? Well, I think the first point to recognize is that, that Du Bois actually spent very little time in Africa. Um, he visited Africa... He visited Liberia in 1923, and there he saw African Americans running the country. And he'd been invited there as a representative of the actually the U.S. state, and he didn't see that African Americans can also be colonialists, and he didn't see that actually African Americans running Liberia was an form of colonialism, did not see the subjugated populations as a colonized populations, and was encouraging the actual investment of U.S. capital in Liberia. Um, he would later criticize himself for this, but at that time, he just didn't see, he thought, well, if African Americans are running the show, then it must be okay. And it's that predisposition to trusting leadership that was a sort of blind spot, I think, in, in Du Bois's his politics. And we see it his, in his faith in the, uh, for example, in the uh, Israeli state. When the Israeli state was formed, he did not see the struggle between Palestinians and, and the Israeli state. Um, uh, he changed his mind on that issue at, in 1956 when he saw, well, at, at the time of the Suez crisis, um, he saw something similar in Brazil. He saw, he saw that, he thought in Brazil there was some sort of racial democracy as a result of the miscegenation that defined the sort of racial relations in, in Brazil, so different from the segregationist politics in the United States. He looked everywhere else um, for, for solutions that might be relevant in the United States and in the process, I think, became rather optimistic about the trajectories of other countries, but always, as I said, always ready to change his mind. And there is a backdrop to all this, is that Du Bois has been interested in Africa since 1900. So when he's 32, I mean, he attends the first Pan-African, what's called then Pan-African Conference um, in Europe. That's 1900. And then he is the, an organizer, a major organizer of the Pan-African Congress of 1919, then of 1921, and then of 19, I think it's 23 and 27, and particularly important uh, Pan-African Congress in 1945, which was attended by many of the future leaders of independent Africa. Um, so he's been very deeply involved in the independence struggle, as if somehow independence will solve all problems. But of course, that's when the problems really begin. And Fanon, of course, is only too conscious, having spent so much time in Africa. Well, not so much time. He's there for, for about eight years, from 54 to, well, to 61. Um, 54 to 56, he was a psychiatrist in Algeria and, and, and became part of the liberation struggle and then to leave Algeria. But he's so involved in those struggles all the time that he can see with his insight, with his knowledge of, of the precursors of the colonial struggle, he can see the problems in the post-colonial order and the struggles between different classes that will take place in the post-colonial order um, that will impede the very possibility of a socialist project. Um, du Bois just does not have that insight into post-colonial Africa. 
You write, Michael, and I think this came from the essay that you're writing for the forthcoming volume, The Oxford Handbook of W.E.B. Du Bois. You write that, having decided that working class interracial solidarity within the U.S. was a lost cause, Du Bois threw all his energy into building an international of the darker races, connecting African Americans to the struggles for self-determination in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. A lot to unpack there, but um, elaborate on on what I just read. Yeah, well, there's two sides to that. Um, on the one hand, his despair about the possibility of interracial class solidarity in the United States. He recognized there were definitely instances of this, and indeed that the Communist Party had become involved in actually building such interracial class solidarities in the 1930s and onwards. Um, but as a major project, it seemed to be limited to him. And, yeah, he got became ever more pessimistic about politics in the United States as he became, uh, he moved further left, and as the... U.S. state itself took a hostile stance towards his politics to the point of actually charging him with being a undeclared foreign agent, an undeclared agent of the Soviet Union, it turned out, and put him on, and he was put on trial. Um, in the end, the, the case was thrown out, um, but the State Department was, was, was not satisfied, and so they appropriated his passport from 19... Uh, 52 to 58. The trial was in 1951. And and it was all, it revolved a lot about his role in the international peace movement. And he was a leading figure in that peace movement. And to be a leading figure in the international peace movement at that time meant that your sympathies were with the Soviet Union rather than the United States. That made you an enemy of the US state. So that's on the one side that he was despairing of politics in the United States and he was losing support, I might add, particularly amongst uh, black middle classes, though the rank and file of the NAACP um, themselves were often quite sympathetic to his position, but uh, the middle classes, the, the talented 10th had sort of, sort of eroded um, and even the, the guiding 100th had. Um, so he was, he was very much isolated here and he turned his attention to the rest of the world and, as you said, sort of began to think about independent struggles um, in colonial territories. Again, this is in the um, aftermath of the Second World War. Um, and as we've already said, that in, in his efforts at the United Nations and um, in his participation in the United States in, in, in various um, pro-African uh, organizations, um, he, he was committed to the independence of Africa and supported people like Nehru um, and Gandhi. And, uh, of course, they, they, India gets independence in 1947, so they are independent earlier than the countries in Africa. But he's quite close to many of the leaders in Africa, or leaders-to-be. Um, and, yes, he he's becomes a committee. And he wants to see, he wants to see a revolution or a revolution or a transformation, um, the future of the world rests with the, the so-called darker races. I should say something I've, never, I've not mentioned so far, that he was also a writer of novels. And one of his most interesting novels is called, was written in 1925. Dark Princess. And Dark Princess is really a story, a fictitious story, about a international, the development of an international revolutionary order that would emerge from the darker races led by a Indian princess. Um, and uh, Du Bois gives an account of how a consortium of leaders across the world from different nations um, who have a very disparaging view of African-Americans send the hero of the, uh, of the novel um, back to the United States where he's supposed to organize um, the working class. It's, 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 it's perhaps not great as a novel, a surreal novel, but it is fascinating for the ways he can express his ideas his visions in a fictitious manner. I call it sociological fiction, or you might call it historical fiction. 
But anyway, this is this is where he turns when he sees that the ideas of Marx and Engels of the unity of a working class in the advanced capitalist countries is not coming about, and he turns to other parts of the world for the sources of revolutionary inspiration. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Michael Borvoy joins us. He's a sociology professor at UC Berkeley who's written a lot about W.E.B. Du Bois in recent years. Michael, I wonder if you could sum up the way in which Du Bois transformed Marxist theory with his book, Black Reconstruction, and his other writings. I think in a nutshell, Du Bois develops a theory of the history of a global capitalism paying attention to the relations of class and race. And he does that for the United States, but he does it also for other countries and puts it all together in a global vision. There's nothing like this. I mean, there's nothing like this in the history of Marxism, in my view, that pays attention to both race and class from a global historical perspective. But there's one, there's another, there are other features that are really distinctive of his, of his contributions. And one is that I talked about before is that he always roots his analysis in the experience, in the experience of the subjugated, whether it be white workers, black workers, whether it be sharecroppers, whether it be the enslaved. He is always taking a perspective starting from the experience of the subaltern groups. And that is another remarkable part of his work. That it is not, he, he knows, he knows he's part of the world he is studying. He knows that as a social scientist, a scholar, and an activist, he must place himself in the world. And he does that by actually always beginning with the experience of his own or of somebody, of, of some other group. Yeah, he, he, so that's another feature that Marxism has had problems sort of um, encountering. When I think of, 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 of Du Bois, I also think of writers such as Antonio Gramsci, who also was unique in his insistence on the importance of the lived experience of the subaltern as being, as being central to any account of how the world can be transformed. So those are at least two, his sort of scientific, historical, global perspective, and then his rootedness um, in experience. I would say another feature is that he was always looking for alternatives. I said before, you can look at his life as a sort of a dialectic between despair and hope. He's always looking for alternatives, um, most visibly, uh, as I've described in the book Black Reconstruction, of an interracial democracy. But it's, it's one of the reasons why he writes his novels, um, is to be able to explore alternatives to the existing order of capitalism, something that is really also very important in this day and age when we can't think of alternatives to capitalism. Um, it, that capitalism systematically obliterates our capacity to think about those alternatives. Du Bois always comes back to that, those alternative possibilities in his writings. Well, those are three features of his, of his Marxism. Let's talk about some features of your new book. It's called Public Sociology has been called an intellectual autobiography. It came out recently from Polity. What prompted you to, to write Public Sociology? Well, Polity approached me to write an introduction to sociology, and I thought, well, you know, I've been teaching undergraduates for 40 years. I should be able to write something for them. Anyway, I tried and I failed. Every time I came up with was a, some sort of reflection upon my own trajectory um, through sociology. And I think I was very influenced by Du Bois as I was writing this. I was very influenced uh, by Du Bois, who, who, who writes three, four autobiographical accounts, starting with, you know, Souls of Black Folk has a sort of semi-autobiographical approach, Darkwater similarly, 
Um, and then he writes uh, a, a final biography. Uh, in, he, I think he writes it around 1960-61. It's published posthumously in 1968. Anyway, my attempt was to sort of try and understand what we do as sociologists. And um, I said one of the things that I haven't emphasized enough about Du Bois is that he was this the preeminent public sociologist world-renowned public sociologist and um, there's nobody like him in the world of sociology he was interesting even when he was in the university and organizing the atlanta school um, from 1897 to 1910 and beyond a little bit uh, he was always trying to get his results so disseminated publicly he wanted to engage with people in a public arena and then of course once he's editor of the crisis that is that is that is the sort of quintessential du bois as public sociologist commenting with his sociological and historical knowledge uh, on, on the events of, of his time. Um, but doing so from outside the academy. And of course, the academics like to control the public sociology. Like I, the, the university um, or, or the professional world um, likes to sort of monitor um, the way that we engage with the world beyond. Du Bois was outside their control. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think another reason why his work has not been sort of sufficiently recognized but anyway throughout his life um, he he was always committed to um, what he sometimes called propaganda and um, that propaganda based on science but nevertheless always trying to, to to engage with people through recognizing their experience yeah well you have had a, a very deep interest in and experience with uh, workers workers in, in various workplaces, in places like Hungary and Russia. You did field work in a Zambian copper mine in a Chicago factory. What stands out to you? I mean, this is a, I know this question is really too big to answer, but um, give us a couple highlights of, of what you discovered as you came into close contact with the people you were learning from in these kinds of work settings. One of the most interesting things is that, you know, when we talk about unskilled workers, it turns out that unskilled workers are very skilled. When I was working in factories, whether it was in Chicago, whether it was in Hungary or Russia um, or, or, or the miners in Zambia, you know, whenever I was working alongside them, I always looked incredibly clumsy and unskilled and pathetic because I did not have the sort of basic tacit skills that they had. So that was, that's a very sort of very rudimentary idea. So it's very interesting to see how workers in different countries respond to an incompetent worker like myself. Um, but basically, I think that the, the, the point that I like to, the general point that emerges from these studies is that the workers respond to the conditions under which they work. And work is organized differently in capitalist country like the United States from a what I call a state socialist country like Hungary it's different again from a post-state socialist or post-socialist country like the post uh, post-soviet Russia um, that workers actually respond to the to the conditions of, of, of their work um, my, my work actually in the United States for example in a book called manufacturing consent was all about the ways in which workers their lives are organized, the work is organized, the, 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 the relations in production are organized, the politics of production are organized to um, deliver some a spontaneous consent to the direction of, of management and capital. And what I found in state socialist societies, and I was specifically um, working in Hungarian factories, that in those countries, um, rather than consent being organized, dissent was being organized. The state orchestrated industries imposed upon workers um, the uh, sort of triumvirate of the trade union management and the party. And they spoke in terms of delivering socialism, equality and justice and efficiency. And workers just laughed. They said, what are, what, what are, efficiency? 
nonsense. This is the most inefficient place. Justice? There's no justice here. Equality? No. So in a sense, it was an imminent critique of the ideology of the party state that led workers to actually, in principle, embrace socialism as a critique of the party ideology. If that's what you believe that we are, let us, let you, try, don't you try and realize the promises that you, um, you claim that we, that you all will realize, um, the promises of socialism. In the end, in the end, and I was there at the end, um, in the end workers lost interest in the very idea of socialism and decided that actually the capitalist um, road out of, out of state socialism and was the preferred one, that they were not interested in the imaginations behind the solidarity movement of 1980-81 in Poland, the ideas of, of, of a socialist democracy, a democratic socialism. No, they turned not from state socialism to democratic socialism that I had sort of hopefully anticipated. They turned to embrace what they saw to be the virtues of capitalism. But they discovered that they had moved from one prison to another prison. And actually the second prison turned out to be more miserable, more insecure for their lives than the previous one. And so there was much within the heart of the working classes in state socialism a sort of nostalgia um, for the uh, state socialist period. You've been a sociologist for a long time. You've headed sociological associations. You've written a lot about sociology as a discipline. You've written about the sociological canon. Uh, what's something that, that comes out of your book um, that you would like to share with lay people, right? Not with uh, people in the academy, people within sociology departments about where sociology headed during the, the period of time, during maybe some of the period of time that you cover in this book, Public Sociology. Yeah, what is the message for a lay audience? Yeah. I think one's trying, I'm trying to convey the idea of sociology as situating people's lived experience, whether as workers, whether as, of, as, as, as housewives, whether as the colonized, situating people's lived experience in their wider context. We tend to be very focused on the immediacy of our own lived experience. And what sociology does is try to link those lived experiences together and see the way that they are shaped by wider forces, whether it be the state, whether it be the market economy. And that is the lesson that we have to learn. If we want to change the world in which we live, then we have to reckon with the constraints on the possibility of those changes. I think it was Marx who said that people make history, but not under conditions of their choice. And we, sociology is all about trying to understand how we can possibly change the constraints that are actually limiting the capacity for us to realize our potentiality. So sociology has a sort of, I say, a utopian moment. We're trying to imagine what is really possible given constraints. Um, it has an anti-utopian project in that not everything is possible. There are, real, there are real limits to what is possible. And we're looking for the possibilities within those limits. Um, that is the, the optimistic vision I have of sociology. And that's what this book is supposed to explore through my various studies in various countries as a worker. The book is Public Sociology. The author is my guest, Michael Borovoy. Again, B-U-R-A-W-O-Y. His books include Manufacturing Consent, uh, The Politics of Production, The Extended Case Method, and Symbolic Violence Conversations with Bourdieu. Public Sociology came out late last year from Polity. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for uh, talking with us today and for sharing your insights and for your work over the many years. Always, always a pleasure to talk with you, CS. Thanks very much for inviting me. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm CS Song. 
We now remember David Harris, the prominent anti-war activist, investigative journalist, and author who died on February 6th at the age of 76. A leader of the Vietnam-era draft resistance movement, Harris went to federal prison for draft evasion for 20 months beginning in July 1969. His books included Dreams Die Hard, Three Men's Journey Through the 60s, The Last Stand, The War Between Wall Street and Main Street Over California's Ancient Redwoods, and The Crisis, The President, The Prophet, and The Shah, 1979 and the Coming of Militant Islam. In March 2004, David Harris joined me in studio to talk about a range of issues, including his activism in the 1960s and the situation in Iraq. Here's a portion of that conversation. He early on mentions SNCC, which is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. You have a somewhat celebrated history. Many people know that you were once married to Joan Baez. A lot of people know that you went to federal prison for draft evasion in the late 60s and early 70s. You were on the cover of Look Magazine, I believe, in 1970. Let's go back to 1965 and Berkeley. I think you were a Stanford student then, and I read somewhere that your first anti-war demonstration was in 1965 at Berkeley, if that's true. Reflect on that. Do you remember what that was like, and why did you go? You know, it was um, an enormous event, not because the event itself was was so dramatic, but just uh, for all of us during that period of time to take that step, ultimately, to go out and position yourself uh, foursquare in the path of the federal government uh, was an enormous undertaking that nobody did lightly or nobody was able to do lightly. Ironically, of course, the hardest part in that was always confronting your parents, not confronting the, <laughs> the mm, government. Mm. The government was easy after the parents. But uh, uh, I had at the time just returned from Mississippi where I had been uh, working with SNCC as a civil rights worker and... Uh, so I had come back with my head full of the kind of perspective of having stepped outside of sort of standard Americana and looked at it from the outside in. And uh, from that perspective, uh, bringing that immediately to bear on the Vietnam War, which at that point was just beginning to escalate. The first large injection of American ground troops had, was just happening at that point. Uh, to take that outside-in look at America and suddenly that war resembled nothing like what the wars were that we were supposed to fight. I mean, all of my generation had grown up uh, on our father's stories from World War II. We had grown up assuming that uh, that we too would have a war to fight and it would look like the ones that they fought. And, and suddenly to be presented with uh, the war in Vietnam uh, and find that it didn't match up to any of the things we had learned about in high school civics uh, was uh, startling and stunning and challenging and uh, once you took that step it was a hard step to take back and I don't know many people who did or many people even wanted to but uh, for me it was that demonstration in Berkeley was the first step and uh, I remember we, I think the demonstration got a attacked by the Hells Angels at some point along right. the line of March and, mm -hmm. and uh, we were trying to get to the Oakland Army Terminal which is what where the in those days the marches started in Berkeley and went into Oakland and uh, headed for the Army Terminal, although uh, it seemed like we we never got much farther than the Oakland border because there, there was always cops waiting to stop us from going any further or whatever. But uh, um, it was obviously in my life a big turning point. And your father was, I think he spent 20 years in the U.S. Army Reserve. Is that correct? And And what were your dealings with him like after you decided to undertake these kinds of things well my dad was uh, uh, had enlisted in the army uh, before world war ii started had just finished his tour and then was then the world war ii started so he went right back in and, and was in through the duration and then was an officer in the uh, in the uh, uh, reserves you know he was no big fan of the vietnam war what his concern was was about his son you know it was I can remember him begging me, please don't do this. You're going to ruin your life. And uh, me having to say to him, well, Dad, it's my life, and I just got to do that. And 
And fortunately, my family uh, stayed together through the Vietnam War, despite uh, uh, me going off and doing what I had to do. And and my dad eventually went through a quite liberating experience behind it himself. when mm. he, he came to visit me after I was first locked up. Um, I spent a month in San Francisco County Jail, then I spent seven months in a prison camp in Arizona, and then another 12 months in a federal correctional institution in Texas. And uh, when I got to Arizona, he came down. I could get visits. So, And uh, he described to me later the, the experience of uh, the first time he went to visit me and sitting there and, and being um, overwhelmed with this desire to physically attack the guard who was, you know, who was going to go fetch me to mm -hmm. bring him there, uh, which for my father was an extraordinary experience. I mean, this is a guy who was a, you know, a standard lawyer doing uh, real estate and trusts and, and wills and, you know, one of those uh, uh, guys that, uh, you know, that you trust implicitly because he's so plain wallpaper kind of guy. And, and uh, the notion of, of doing anything against the law was, was quite beyond his, his range. But, I mean, he wouldn't even cheat on his taxes, you know. And uh, to him, for him to suddenly have this proprietary feeling that he had to defend his son against the government was a big breakthrough for him and a big breakthrough in our relationship and and uh, you know it was uh, the uh, for everybody who was young in the 60s uh, coming to terms with uh, not just what was going on in the world but how that would affect your relationship with your family was uh, was a big issue and it certainly was a big one for me you were a big part of, of activism back in the 60s. We don't really even have time to, to talk about the the role of the draft resistance movement in the movement to end the war, which was uh, quite significant. But I want to get you to reflect on activism, anti-war activism, student activism back in the 60s and 70s, and how it compares with today, what parallels you see, um, how you com might compare, for example, the strength of what's happening today as opposed to uh, when you were doing your thing in the 60s? Well, you know, I, I think uh, um, for us in the 60s, um, you have to remember, I think, to put it all in context, what an enormous discovery this was. I mean, to discover that what was going on in the country was not what you had been told it was in high school civics. I mean, now, of course, that sounds terribly lame and what, you know, but uh, uh, such was the nature of the 1950s. That, uh, and there was no constituency out there uh, that we could uh, identify with easily to uh, take us in that direction. There was no, as far as we were concerned, there was no history of... of have political opposition, although certainly there obviously was historically, but in terms of our immediate circumstance, this, there was no sense that that was anywhere around us or available to us. So that uh, all of it was was uh, kind of cloaked in this virginal, oh, I don't believe it. Yes, this is what these guys are doing, you know. And, and uh, what came with that was also a kind of basic moral premise which had been framed, uh, uh, at least for me and a number of my generation, uh, intellectually when I first arrived at Stanford University by this philosopher Hannah Arendt, who had uh, written a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, which was uh, an account of the uh, Israeli trial of Adolf Eichmann as a, as a Nazi war criminal after the Israelis had kidnapped him from, from Argentina and brought him back to Israel and and uh, suddenly, the, you know, all the post-World War II issues reemerged in the early 1960s around the Eichmann trial. And she wrote the, this book uh, talking about the trial and talking about what Eichmann meant and uh, basically framed the issue, which was for her, the significant issue was what, not what do you do about the Germans if you're an American, because anybody outside of Germany, that was ultimately an obvious choice. <laughs> These people had to be stopped, They had to, and so you stop them. But the issue, the real issue, the one that confounds modern civilization, is what do you do if you're a German? And uh, that was not an abstract issue for my generation. That became a very concrete issue. When you see immorality and injustice and uh, war crimes being done 
not by strangers, but being done by your own government with the force of your own laws behind it, what is your obligation as a citizen in response to that? And the answer to the question for us was you take responsibility. Nobody is free of responsibility in a modern society. Whatever is done in your name is done in your name, and you are responsible for it. And that uh, modern societies function not by necessarily um, cultivating agreement amongst all of the members. They do it by cultivating cooperation. It doesn't need you to like its policy as long as you do whatever is, is necessary for that policy to happen. For my generation, the biggest and most visible symbol of that was the selective service system, which was the, the government organization for military conscription, uh, which dominated the lives of young men between the ages of 18 and 26 for my generation. Uh, you know, you, you registered when you were 18, and, and uh, if you didn't uh, do what they demanded you do, you would end up uh, getting their order to go into the military. So that for us, the issue was, well, how do we take responsibility in the face of this policy? And it led right back to the question of, well, where where are you benefiting this policy? Where wh What is it that, uh, that you're doing that bolsters their ability to do this? And certainly cooperating with the selective service system was that, even if they didn't take you into the Army, just by letting them classify you and carrying their card and, and accepting your role as a sheep uh, was enough to do it. So that uh, what came out of that was the belief that old, the ultimate repository of the national identity uh, and who we are as Americans is not the government, is not any of the elected officials. It is the citizenry of the country. And their behavior is what will ultimately determine who we are as a people. And that it was time for us to realize that and step up to the mark. Now, I think uh, nowadays the situation is extraordinarily different. The options available are, you know, are so numerous. I mean, my generation grew up trying to fill in the blank spots. Uh, your generation has grown up with no blank spots. I mean, the, the number of options and the amount of information that is available today bears no resemblance to what it was like in 1963. So that the, that larger context has changed, has shifted dramatically. Doesn't that in some sense bode well for what we should be able to accomplish today? I would think so. But again, uh, the key element there is to, to what extent people recognize and accept their own responsibility for what's going on and behave accordingly. Uh, you know, otherwise you're simply left there with so many options you can't choose between them. Mm -hmm. What is necessary in the current situation is an affirmation of values that allows you to make choices in this kind of circumstance. And uh, I think... Uh, while that exists to some degree, certainly the landscape has shifted dramatically. You know, in my era, there wasn't anybody but the students. You know, if you had an anti-war march like we did, let's say, in 1967 in, uh, at Kezar Stadium in San Francisco, and uh, at that march uh, there were roughly 100,000 people who showed up in 1967, of those 100,000, you could be sure 80% of those were under the age of 26. I mean, that's mm -hmm. that's what existed. Mm -hmm. Well, and things have changed dramatically then. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, um, when I w went to the marches before the war in San Francisco, and, you know, you take a look at the crowd, and you say, remarkable, because all ages, all communities, all everything uh, are out there. And uh, nowadays, uh, that's terribly heartening. That's David Harris speaking with me in studio in March 2004 a year after the U.S. invaded Iraq. I'm C.S., this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio, and we are remembering the prominent anti-war activist who died on February 6th. Here are more portions of my conversation with David Harris. So, well, you mentioned Iraq. What should the U.S. now do in Iraq? It did invade, it has been occupying. The peace movement, or much of it, seems to suggest that the solution would be as simple as withdrawing the troops as soon as possible and letting the Iraqis work with other international help to rebuild the country. What's your take? Well, I'm not sure of the timing of the withdrawal of American troops. So much depends upon what else happens. 
but uh, certainly we want American troops out of there as quickly as, as can be. And we do have, I think, a strong moral obligation to try and rebuild this country, which we have devastated uh, with uh, two wars and a boycott during the intervening 10 years that has pretty much destroyed the infrastructure of this society. I think it's in our interest to make sure that that gets, country gets put back together. I think the key to American policy is to, as soon as possible, to separate what's going to happen in Iraq from our own national policies, meaning that, that uh, get the, the decision-making there into the hands of the United Nations, get the peacekeeping there into the hands and the oversight of the United Nations, even if it continues to involve American troops as well as other troops, but to shift the responsibility for what's going on there to an international body as quickly as possible. I think, uh, in addition to that, that, uh, that we have to uh, make sure that part of the agreements that come out of this new government that's going to be established in Iraq is not one for American bases that the worst step the United States could take in this is to come out of it with a permanent military installation in Iraq. That will simply confirm the entire regions and the entire world's impression of what the United States is up to, that we have to bend over backwards now to prove that we have distanced ourselves from a policy of empire. And to do that, we cannot establish a military base in Iraq. You mentioned earlier this possibility that, okay, perhaps we withdraw U.S. troops except to the extent that they stay as part of a, a U.N. mission, a U.N. force. Is there any reason to believe that any existence of, uh, you know, that, that keeping any U.S. military troops in Iraq, whether under the U.N. or whether under uh, U.S. control, which some people would say is the same, uh, that, that that would allow realistically the Iraqis to rebuild the country in the way they want to? Well, I think that uh, the necessity of having American peacekeepers there, or, you know, or, or troops there to, to try and keep the civil peace uh, is first and foremost a logistical issue at this stage of the game. To simply withdraw a huge occupying army and leave nothing there would be a great mistake. Uh, I think uh, the breakdown in civil order uh, is one of the key reasons that the Iraqis have not been able to rebuild in a faster fashion than, than uh, uh, they might have liked. And we can't simply ignore that and, and pretend that it's not there. I think uh, that uh, uh, that if under a new Jesus, uh, that of the UN, and uh, a new rallying cry, which is that of a, a multilateral uh, uh, attempt to bring equity to the to the Iraqi people, that uh, that American force is not going to prevent uh, the Iraqis from pursuing that. I think they will have their own difficulties pursuing it. I mean, the the internal issues facing Iraq, independent of the Americans, are considerable, and uh, I think uh, there is a larger message for us as Americans in that, which is that uh, democracy, while it may be exportable as an idea. And certainly uh, uh, we have all subscribed to that in one way or another, at least I have throughout my life. But it is not enforceable. You cannot establish democracies at the point of a gun. Uh, you know, there has to be a, a set of internal forces there that make democracy possible. And it's why overthrowing dictators like Saddam Hussein by using an outside army at, uh, like the Americans is ultimately perhaps a self-defeating task. Uh, you need that internal infrastructure and in internal consciousness that uh, a liberation movement brings with it to, to root the government that is to follow. And that we went after Saddam Hussein, who is a bad guy, deserves not to be anybody's government anywhere at any point in time, and is certainly somebody who's engaged in genocide among other crimes. But the problem with approaching him simply as a as a, a unilateral American force and replacing him, and attempting to replace him with democracy, uh, is that uh, there doesn't leave behind any of the infrastructure. There is no uh, Iraqi movement to replace it. Uh, you know, it's not that he was a mystery to the Iraqis. 
but there was no movement against him active inside of Iraq, which could then provide the basis for for moving on to self-governance. So that, that this notion that Americans can somehow sit halfway around the world, take a country that 60% of Americans could not even identify on a map on the day we invaded them, uh, and uh, simply decide that they deserve this kind of government and that we are going to give them this kind of government is a fool's errand. This, doesn't, this is not the way democracy happens, and uh, we should wise up if we really want to see democracy. Later in this 2004 interview, David Harris shared these thoughts about U.S. military intervention in the Middle East and beyond. Ultimately, this war is not going to be won by anybody's military power. This war is going to be won by our ability to make connection with the rest of the rest of the world, specifically with the people in that region, specifically with with uh, Muslims uh, throughout the world. That uh, that if we allow to simply sit in place the notion that the United States and Islam are in conflict, that is in, and inevitable, we're going to have this for for the rest of our lifetimes and beyond that. That the answer isn't to simply put out uh, armies that can stomp on the rest of the world. We have that military capacity. We all understand it. There is no doubt of who the dominant military power in the world today is. There's nobody even close in second place. But that dominant military power doesn't get us what we need. Instead, it's our, it's our willingness not to use that power which is going to convince the rest of the world that they ought to help us. The anti-war activist, investigative journalist, and author David Harris speaking with me on March 22, 2004. I also want to take a moment to remember Jen Angel. About 15 years ago, I had the good fortune of working closely with Jen for several months, I think it was six months, when Sasha Lilly was away from the program. Jen, who helped me produce Against the Grain, struck me as incredibly committed smart, principled, affable, and collaborative. She clearly lived her politics. I really admired her then, and I admire her now. And it perhaps sounds trite to say that Jen Angel lives on, but it's true. In my case, she will be a source of inspiration and energy, both personal and political, in the months and years to come. Thank you, Jen. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>